0: Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. But uh, if we were to discuss mission this evening, and we all come from perhaps different perspectives, we might not agree about everything. But I think there's one thing we would all agree about, and that is that mission... Is difficult there is no easy place for mission and I think that's especially the case in what we call the Western world we hear of great church growth in South America East Asia Africa but the church shrinking in Europe and in the British Isles this continent once the springboard for world mission now is perhaps the most needy continent of all and we use fancy titles to describe the The mindset of the world we're in today we talk about a post-christian world the subject that i taught was with jacob and ibi was church history and reminded there that from around the fourth century onwards this part of the world was part of a great uh virtually a christian state which became known as christendom where the church and the state were really two sides of the same coin persecution had stopped and in fact now christians began to persecute non-christians And there was a great desire to hold together that whole empire under one belief. And so you have uh, the Emperor Constantine presiding over, for example, the Council of Nicaea, which produced the Nicene Creed. And people could be literally put to death for not believing in the Trinity, as sadly happened at the time of the Reformation. Sunday, the day of the sun god became the day of Christian worship. And the 25th of December, the birthday of the sun god, the celebration of the Incarnation. Uh, marriage was understood to be marriage in Christian terms between a man and a woman under uh, godly principles. That was more or less accepted as the norm in this part of the world. And even here in Ireland, uh, we weren't battling so much with Christianity versus other isms, but which version of Christianity we belong to, the, the Roman Catholic or the Protestant versions. Ireland was a, essentially a Christian continent. And in fact, one of the reasons that Turkey finds it very difficult to get into the European Union today is because it would be the first non or or country with a non-Christian uh, tradition and basis. It would be the first Islamic country, though it's uh, supposedly a secular country. That's one of the big difficulties for Turkey getting into the EU today, because we have understood uh, that Europe is a virtually a Christian continent, and the leaders of Germany and France both have spoken very clearly. They don't want a non-Christian nation into the EU Here in Ulster, I suppose, uh, particularly we have had that uh, legacy of Christendom, Uh, two services on Sunday, packed churches over the years, shops closed on the Sunday, no sport, even the swings were locked up in Belfast, that was how strict our Sabbatarianism was. Uh, That's what we've been used to. That's what I grew up with as a child in Ulster. But we're living in changed days, aren't we? because Sunday is now the day for big uh, business and for sport Uh, at least a third of the marriages in Ireland break down probably a lot more than that but over half the children born in the Republic last year were born outside marriage and in fact large numbers simply don't get married at all nowadays simply live together and now the very definition of marriage is between a man and a woman is being challenged legally in the southern Irish Parliament Uh, church attendance uh, has declined in all denominations Uh, take for example the roman catholic church since uh, pope john paul came to dublin i can't remember how many years ago it was but it has declined mass attendance declined from ninety percent to less than forty percent and i think less than ten percent in most parts of dublin the denomination of which i'm a part the presbyterian church in ireland is losing roughly four thousand people a year the Methodists and the Republic have halved in numbers over the last 25 years. So, these are just some uh, signs of the decline of Christendom. We can no longer assume that society out there reflects the values of the church. The second word we like to throw around is the word postmodern, which I think at least means that people would say there are no objective values today of right and wrong or true or false or good or bad. There's only what's right for me, or, right for you, or true for you, or true for me. It's what I feel is the key. There is no standard out there by which our lives are assessed. The third thing we say is that we're in a pluralist world today. It used to be that it was a kind of monochrome Christian tradition. Uh, but the 2006 census uh, tells us that the third biggest group in the Republic of Ireland, a religious group after the Roman Catholic Church, is Islam. Far more Muslims than Presbyterians and Methodists put together and, and Baptists as well. But the second group, uh, to or the, that would be the third after Islam, is those who have no religion. That's according to the most recent statistics. And at the last uh, call, as far as I remember, the head of the BBC Religious Affairs Broadcasting is a Muslim. So we're in a, a multicultural, pluralistic world. I remember going into a, a bookshop in Kilkenny some years ago. It's quite a big bookshop, Uh, going to the religious section, and there were books on New Age movement, books on uh, crystals, and books on meditation, and books on yoga, and books on every kind of spirituality, but not a single book uh, of a biblically Christian kind in the very large religious section. That's the world we're in today. The fourth word we use to describe our society is it's a secular world it's post-christian post-modern pluralist and secular a very aggressive secular movement at the moment seeking to remove christian influence from the center of society to the margins and from the public realm to the private realm that's why we hear constantly of christians being suspended for uh, the crime of wearing a cross around their neck for example uh Marriage registers losing their jobs because they refuse to preside over uh, gay civil ceremonies. Uh, And Kitty Taylor's gold medal in the Republic has caused huge embarrassment to the media. They don't quite know how to handle a young girl who says that her strength is in God. If she'd said the president or the flag or some other thing, no problem. But how embarrassing for journalists to have to report that she finds her strength In God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we're in a secular, pluralist, postmodern, post-Christian world. At least those are the names that we throw around. But I think most of us who are my age are very conscious that something is changing, are we not, in our society? It's not how it used to be. Society is no longer as friendly to the gospel as it used to be. And that, I think, puts many Christians on the back foot. What do we do when we see this external decline in the church? Some resort to nostalgia, talking about the good old days, how it used to be, and uh, sometimes I find myself doing that, looking back to how it used to be. Some are tempted to hype up the message, let's make it say more than it actually says, the wealth, health, and prosperity message, that may attract the people. Or let's tone down the message so that it's less offensive than it appears to be. Let's get rid of those things like sin and judgment and so on that are not politically correct. Or let's make it more entertaining and relevant and worship more like pop music and so on. If only we can entertain people, then we'll get them to the church. Or let's find a new method. If only we had a new method, then that's how we could do it. And, of course, we've had a whole series of methods. And, by the way, I'm not criticizing these methods. I'm simply saying that we've tried uh, the business approach through the church growth movement where the gospel is almost uh, dealt with as a commodity what does the consumer want? How can we make it more appealing to the customer? The seeker sensitive model, give people what they want. Now, of course, again, there are very good things in the seeker sensitive movement. Uh, The emergent church focuses on drama and symbol rather than the proclamation of the word. And some feel that our main task is to make this world a better place and to focus less on preparation for the world to come. So, there are all sorts of Moves that people make, if only we had another scheme or another approach, then that would be the answer. And which one of us doesn't feel our own weakness? As we try to reach out, what one of us finds it easy? We find it difficult to communicate the gospel to a changing world and a world that doesn't seem all that interested in what we have to say. Sometimes we might think if only Jesus were here. If only we had his powerful sermons instead of our weak ones. If only we had his matchless character instead of our flawed characters. If only we had the ability to demonstrate his acts of power, his miracles, instead of our feeble attempts at witness. Then the world would suddenly fall at our feet and the churches would be packed. One of the benefits of reading Mark's gospel is that Mark tells us what actually did happen when the Son of God was here on earth. In fact, Mark's gospel really is a manual on mission. It was written to discourage Christians in Rome. The the Lord had not returned. They had thought that the kingdom of God was going to sweep the boards, but instead they faced persecution. Uh, Nero was in full swing in his persecution against the Christians. Uh, Nearly all the apostles were dead. It was very tough for these Christians in Rome. And so Mark here recalls for them that The teaching of our lord jesus christ about the kingdom of god and what our lord is telling us in these three parables is what can we expect when we engage in the mission of the kingdom in this period between his first and his second coming and i hope you'll notice that in these three parables we have this wonderful combination of realism on the one hand lest we get too carried away and also of optimism lest we become too discouraged or cynical and it seems to me that's exactly what we need in the church today a very large dose of realism about mission and yet a real dose of encouragement so let's reflect upon what mark says about the work of mission we've read three parables from chapter 4 but let's keep in mind chapters 1 2 & 3 as well because there we learn something about the attitude that we can expect from the world what the Bible calls the world, that godless, secular mindset. What attitude can we expect from the world to God and His Word and His Son? Now, think back to chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we've been reading over the last number of days. There we see how the Lord brought really good news to the community. He drove out demons in chapter 1. He heals many sick. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, a whole townful, the leper, the paralytic man, the man with the shriveled hand, and then there's another demon-possessed man who is restored to his right mind, and a sick woman is cured, and a dead girl is raised. What wonderful good news that must have been in the villages of Galilee. And what was the outcome? Did they uh, nominate our Lord Jesus Christ for an honorary DD? Did they give him the freedom of Galilee? Was he invited to preach in their local synagogues? Well, theologians have a name for the first three chapters of Mark's gospel. They are called conflict stories. They're stories of increasing hostility to the Son of God and to His Word. And you'll notice if you read through those chapters how that tension builds up. Chapter 2, verse 6, they're muttering to themselves, this man's a blasphemer, they're saying. Chapter 2, verse 16, they're criticizing Jesus to His disciples. Why is he eating with these sinners? And then they're criticizing the disciples to Jesus. Why do they not fast like John's disciples? That's in chapter 2, verse 18. And then chapter 2, verse 24, the issue is about eating corn on the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, Jesus himself is in the firing line because he's actually dared to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And by chapter 3, verse 6, we're only three chapters into this gospel. What are they doing? This ungodly alliance of political and religious leaders are plotting to kill the Son of God. Here's a powerful illustration of Psalm 2. The rulers of this world take their stand against the Lord and His Anointed One. The God of this world and the spirit of this world is set against God and His Son and His Word and His people. You'll remember, of course, in Matthew's gospel, uh, that Ma- Matthew 5, the lovely description of the members of the kingdom of God. Here are the marks of people who belong to his kingdom. Think of what they are, meek, merciful, pure in heart, long after what is right, peacemakers, and so on. Now, would you not expect that such people would be universally popular in society? Except that our Lord adds a neat beatitude. How blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake persecuted for my name's sake. That comes with the territory. That's what we're being warned. If you're a member of the kingdom of God, however gracious your life, however faithful your life to God's Word, you will face the opposition of this world. And notice too, as you read through these chapters, how the hostility comes. For example, in chapter 2, verse 7, it was because of Jesus' exclusive claims to be the Son of God. That's still a source of hostility. How dare you say that Jesus... Is the only way. Chapter 2, verse 16, he's mixing with the wrong types. I had a very irate gentleman coming to me and said, I don't like these types who are coming to the church now. They're not real Presbyterians, he said. Neither they were, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the publicans and sinners were gathering around as, as Jesus uh, spoke to them in his word. But he was really angry. What are they doing in the church? This is our club. He didn't say that, of course, but that's how he saw it. So many people see the church as their club, and it happens in this province as well. And what are these people coming in? They're not dressed right. They don't speak right. They come from another tradition or another country, and they don't fit in our club. People get really angry about such things. In chapter 2, verse 18, it's because they were refusing to observe longstanding traditions and culture. The most bitter hostility to the gospel that I have discovered in this province is from professing evangelicals who want to ally the gospel to a unionist culture. How angry they become when it's pointed out that the gospel is for all the peoples and all the cultures and is not tied into any culture or flag. And in chapter 8, verse 31, this opposition would lead to the cross. So, when the gospel enters a community, we can always expect a twofold reaction. Some will be drawn to Christ. Others will be intensely opposed. So, that's just the prelude to these three parables, because in the parables, we now come to a second heading, not so much the attitude of the world to the Son of God, but the attitude of the world to the Word of God. And notice these three parables. Three parables where the word is likened to a seed and it seems to me there's nothing wrong here with the work the sower does he seems to sow the seed well though of course those of us and that's why jacob and his ibi and belfast bible college exist to help people rightly handle the word of truth We've got to work hard to teach it well and with imagination and with faithfulness and clarity but it seems to be that the seed was sown well and of course there was nothing wrong with the seed the seed is the word of god it's all to do with the response in the soils, isn't it? And notice how these three parables have two aspects. They're all very discouraging. Every one of them has a real discouragement. But thankfully, everyone also has a real encouragement. And that's how mission is. Let's look at the discouragements. First of all, the parable of the soils. The, the sower went forth to sow. So, sow. Chapter 4, verse 1. What's the discouraging thing about this parable? Well, surely it's this enormous wastage of seed. Think of all that seed that was sown, all that effort that was made trying to get the seed out, and so much of it, in fact, nearly all of it seems to be wasted. All those prayer meetings, all those Bible studies, all those missions held, all those leaflets distributed, and so little result. I have a colleague, Billy, who is an evangelist, and he Tramps around the doors of Drochida day by day, week in and week out. And I remember for one particular event that he was running, he gave out, I think, somewhere in the region of 3,000 leaflets. How many people came to the meetings through the leaflets? One. That's how the work is. Now, others came for other reasons, but all that work for so little obvious result. All those homes visited and so little immediate result. And worse than that, sometimes there seem to be results. People seem to come to faith, and then they fall away. Isn't that what we're told in this parable? And you'll notice how it's due to the world, verse 19, the flesh, verse 17, and the devil, verse 15. This work can be very discouraging. I think back to the number of people who profess faith in Christ, and they're gone. And it's really, really hard to take. That's what we discover in the work of mission. It's very discouraging. All that wastage of effort, it seems. Let's come to the second parable, verse 26. The seed that grows silently. What's the discouraging thing about this parable? Well, the work is so slow. You put a seed in the soil, and you get up the next day, and absolutely nothing has happened. I have, I have boys at home, and when they were children, we used to put sunflower seeds in a jam pot in the window. And he would put them in one day, and they would see this beautiful sunflower in the packet. And they would go the next day expecting something, and nothing had happened. And the next day, and the next day, and for many days, nothing at all. It, the work is so slow. And sometimes we want to speed it up. We want to use business methods in the work of evangelism. Some people actually like can project how many converts they're going to have as they sell the gospel as a product in a certain way. They hold revival meetings, and with the right kind of pressure, you can get so many decisions at the end of the meeting. It's guaranteed. In fact, I saw one uh, discipleship course advertised, and it said at the bottom, results guaranteed. But the work of the kingdom is not like that. The work of the kingdom is a harvest, and harvest is slow, because certain things have to happen to that seed. As this parable points out, it has to germinate, and then a little root goes down, and then a shoot goes up. And then gradually it appears above the surface and only much later on does the full seed appear. This work is very, very slow. If only the gospel were a production line, we could guarantee what comes out the other end. but we can't. Getting God's word into people's minds and hearts and changing attitudes could take months and years and maybe a lifetime. That's the work we're in. It takes great perseverance to stick at it. But our Lord says, this is what you can expect. The third parable, verse 31, is the mustard seed. And what's the discouraging thing here? Well, how unimpressive are the resources? What could be less impressive than the tiniest seed of all this little mustard seed? What could be less impressive than our resources as Christians? I go into hospitals sometime to to visit people. And I noticed the doctors there with their stethoscopes, and the nurses with their tablets and syringe to give somebody a jab to kill their pain. And what do I go in with? Well, little Gideon Bible, and a prayer. That's all I have to offer. It seems so feeble and so weak. Pop stars have their PR people. Hollywood has its special effects. Religion has its smells and bells and robes and all that stuff that is impressive to the outward eye. In fact, that's what they jibe the Hebrew Christians about. You have no temple. You have no priest. You have no sacrifice. You're meeting in your little rooms. Why don't you come back to the real thing with real show and real appearance? But our resources are so unimpressive, so simple, so unpromising. And sometimes it's not only the resources that are small, but sometimes people can make God's servants feel small. What did he say about Paul in Corinth? His speech is not impressive. What about these much more eloquent orators in Corinth? Look at Paul. He can hardly speak properly. He's not an impressive character outwardly. They called George Whitfield Dr. Squintum as a jive because he had a slight squint in one eye. William Wilberforce, who fought to abolish slavery, was called the Shrimp. He was a little man, and they despised him, and they ridiculed him, and they did everything they could to stop him. Are you these fundamentalists, these born-again people? Whatever term they use, you can be made to feel very small. What do I need your gospel for? Don't I have a good home and a good car and a good husband? I've heard someone say that. You can feel very small in the work of the gospel. Now, what does the Lord tell us? That's what you must expect. Because all three parables are very discouraging. Now, I hope by this stage you are thoroughly discouraged. (laughs) Because our Lord is saying that's what you're going to experience in the work of the gospel. But let's now, in closing, turn to the other aspect. Because, thankfully, all three parables are so encouraging. Take the first one, the the verse 8, the good soil. What's the encouraging thing about this parable? Well, when this good seed finds good soil, you simply can't stop it. It grows, and it runs, and it multiplies. Isn't that a lovely thing? I think of one soldier who was introduced to the gospel. Sadly, he fell away, but before he fell away, he introduced another soldier And his wife, and from them, four other soldiers, and their wives, and two sisters, and their husbands, and a mother, and a brother. And about two pews in our church in Kilkenny were filled with an extended military presence. Because through one single soldier, the others had come and come to faith in Christ, and their husbands, and their in laws, and their outlaws, and the whole thing spread. I think of one couple who simply walked off the street one Sunday, very nervously sat in the back of the little church. And they just never stopped coming. And today, Tom is an evangelist in Kilkenny, along with his wife, in the work of the Irish Mission. Leading others to Christ. Leading Bible studies in his own community. I think of our feeble attempts to try to reach the young people when we first went there. Very hard to reach out into a community where you don't know the the children and the schools and you don't have much contact with many of them. But we had a party for, we had a little youth club and we decided to have a party in our home. And our numbers went from six to about 20 in one night because there was food available. They all brought their friends, and they left a mess in the house, stains in the carpet, cigarette butts and lying you know behind the, the toilet and uh, jelly down the side of the city. and it was a real mess. We said, "We'll never do this again." But one little girl, a 15-year-old, came to faith, and she then went to the pizzeria that she worked in and shared the gospel with her boss, who came to faith, came to a Bible study and came to faith. And she shared the gospel with one of the ladies who worked in the pizzeria. I still remember the first Sunday she turned up at church. It was a Sunday evening event. We had no lights in those days. We had an old farmhouse light, I think, that we had an old spotlight. But I could see the cigarette butt glowing in the back pew. Now, it's quite unusual even in Kilkenny, But there we are. She was smoking away in the back pew and left very hostile after the meeting, but could not get over the change in her boss. And she came to faith. And I'll tell you the story tomorrow about her husband and son, but they also both came to faith in a a very wonderful way. Just through a little girl who came to a youth club party. When this good seed finds good soil, you can't stop it. And incidentally, that young girl is now a very fine Christian mother uh, who's, Given very generously of her time and money and resources for the work of the kingdom, I think of a little boy in a barn in a children's club we ran it over 1991. We called it the 1991 Club. I suppose maybe a hundred children there. Only one responded. It was cold. It was miserable. It was dark. We had old super there, but one little boy responded. He's now the assistant minister in this church. I think of going to run a Bible study in Clonmel, traveling roughly 64 miles return. We had five nights. We'd booked a hotel room. And uh, for four nights, nobody turned up. We took a little group of four with us, or four or five, and I had two Bible studies prepared so that if nobody turned up, we would have a Bible study together. Fifth night, nobody turned up again, so we started our own Bible study for each other. But one hour after that Bible study began, three ladies turned in. And I said, ladies, you're just in time, we're just about to start, so we started the second Bible study. Now, the lady was not converted on that evening, but later was, and she and her husband gave up their business, their sawmill. They sold up, and they have given their money to... Uh, build two Christian schools in Pakistan, and give what they have for the work of the gospel and so story after story, we could tell how when the good seed finds good soil, you cannot stop it. I think at the moment of a, a lady that one of our members met on the street, which I think I maybe mentioned the other evening she 's in a, she owns a reflexology shop, whatever that is, I have no idea alternative therapies or something like that. But all these ladies meet together for therapy. But this one lady came, and she came to church, was initially quite skeptical of the whole thing, but she kept coming. And then she brought her partner. And then one after one, all these other ladies began to come, and they've just keep coming now to the church and starting to go into the Bible studies. One wants to go on a mission trip this summer or this coming summer. But simply because one contact on the street, you don't know where it's going to end. You don't know what life is going to be changed. It's a very thrilling thing to be involved in the work of the gospel because every time that seed goes out, you don't know when it's going to find good soil and you don't know where it's going to end. I think I told the story on, on uh, Sunday evening, but it bears telling again how the gospel came to Korea, a Buddhist nation which was closed to gospel witness, but one young man from Britain went there with a geographical expedition as they were trying to map the Pyongyang River. It was the only way into the country. And he took Bibles with him, uh, Bibles and Christian books. And he had understood also that they were all in Chinese. At that stage, they hadn't the Korean language, but they understood that Koreans could understand uh, Chinese language to some degree. Anyway, some. Uh, furore broke out. Uh, They were in a boat in the river, and some locals had gone onto the boat, and a fight broke out, and shooting happened, and both lots were shooting at each other, and every single member of the boat was shot dead. But some of the Korean people remember this one man walking up the mud as he was being shot with these books, dropping them in the mud. And they lay there. He never got to speak to one Korean person about the gospel. But I think it was 25 years later before missionaries got into the country, And all the way down that river, there were churches. And the revival began in that way. And, of course, it spread over the whole nation. Because one man left Bibles as he was dying on the beach of the river. And that good seed found good soil. And today, Korea is probably, South Korea at least, is probably one of the most Christian countries in the world. Let's come to the second parable. Well, we'll do it in a slightly different order. Verse 32, let's come to the mustard seed. What's the, the very encouraging thing about this mustard seed parable? Well, from these very, very small resources, this little mustard seed, something very powerful and great can come. The gospel can strengthen the weakest people. Martin Luther once said, with this one word, we have more power than they with all their guns. And that, re- that was a reflection on his time at the Diet of Worms. He, remember, he was and asked to come to that diet to recant his views and the books that he'd written. And when he stood before the might of the empire and the church, he was terrified. He could hardly speak. And he actually asked for 24 hours to think the matter through, and they gave him that 24 hours. But he spent the evening in a room alone with Psalm 46. Our God is a refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. And, of course, he wrote that great hymn eventually, a safe stronghold, our God is still. But as he writes in his own writings, he said, after that night, the lamb, as he was on the first night, became a lion. Nothing could stop him. God's word had strengthened him, and he said, here I stand, I can do no other. This word can strengthen the weakest people in the service of God, and it can transform the most discouraging situations. When we first went to Kilkenny, I was given a list of, I think, 12 lapsed Presbyterians to go to visit, people that they thought, because, of course, that was our ministry to the lapsed Presbyterians in in the city. Well, I couldn't find most of them, and the few that I did find had absolutely no interest whatsoever in coming to the church or in the gospel. But it seems that God had other purposes in mind because it was people from that other community, that community we didn't expect, maybe, who began to flock into the church. And so the gospel can transform the most unlikely and most apparently discouraging situations, and it can convert the toughest of people. I think of Johnny, who would have spent most Friday nights drinking and fighting on the streets of the city there. The very first time he heard the gospel, I'm not going into the details of how he was converted. Today is a humble, godly, loving father. And from that day on, he opened his home in a little terrace street For Bible study for his neighbors. His wife was converted. His three sisters were converted, at least one of their husbands, and into the next generation. But also, for some 20 something years now, his home has been opened for Bible study in that area. It still goes on to this day, every single Tuesday evening. Tough guy, no chance of being converted in our worldly thinking. But the gospel was powerful to change Johnny. And again, a couple of pews are filled by his extended family. And further, the gospel can unite those from completely opposite traditions when nothing else can do it. I may have told this story before in this church. I can't remember, but let me tell it again. I remember traveling up once to a, a service in Donegal. Uh, our youth worker, who's actually here today, was then our youth worker, was being inducted in a church in Donegal. But driving round by the border, uh, I had a family from the church. They were from the west of Ireland, uh, and they had wanted to come to this induction service or this installation service. And there we were, two families together. And I happened to partly jokingly point across the border into Fermanagh and said, that's where my granddad was the head of the bee specials, because he was in County Fermanagh. And she said, well, Mary said, my granddad was head of the West of Ireland Brigade of the IRA. And there we were, not only in the same car, not only in the same church, not only tolerating each other, but actually brothers and sisters in the same Christian family. Now, can the politicians achieve that? Or the peace studies experts, or the sociologists, or the psychiatrists? They can't. But the gospel can. This gospel is very powerful. It can unite people who are opposites and make them one. Who would have thought of sending this Gentile-hating Saul of Tarsus to reach the Gentiles? But this same bigoted Saul can now write, my dear brothers and sisters, how I hold you in my heart. The gospel unites people who are apparently opposites. And the gospel can stand up in the most hostile situations. I'll never forget a conversation that I had, a reluctant one on my part with a an academic in Belfast, a very brilliant guy, very arrogant guy, very anti-Christian. And I had the unfortunate privilege of having a meal in his home, and we ended up discussing the gospel within about two minutes. But I remember he, he began the conversation by attacking, you know, why is it, as he put it, an intelligent fellow, you into all this stuff? But we got talking anyway, and we got a long story short. I simply asked him if he could live by his own philosophy that, you know, the world is nothing but an accident and we are nothing but chemicals and so on and I'll not go into the conversation but by the end of it I discovered this arrogant academic was actually a very vulnerable man his marriage was on the rocks and who admitted that he couldn't live by his own philosophy and suddenly the gospel seemed a very strong thing in that situation it started seeming very weak ended up very strong always remember his final words to me said I would dearly love John to believe that what you're telling me is true. Because only the gospel could explain uh, his situation. So this mustard seed, this tiny little resource that we have, is really a very powerful resource indeed. But let's come to the third uh, and final parable, the seed growing silently, verse 28. Now, what's the encouraging thing about this parable? Well, surely it is that even while we are asleep, God is at work. The results are not in our hands at all. We plant the seed and we leave the results to God. And I I can't think of too many benefits of being older, but this is one benefit that I've discovered. And Jacob, I'm not saying you're my age or not, but you've seen Ireland over the long term. We can look back, I can think back 27 years. I can remember how it was when we first went to Kilkenny 27 years ago. Little mustard seeds had been sown right down the west of Ireland, but nothing much to see. And now all over the island, those mustard seeds are appearing above the ground, and they're turning up at IBI for training in ministry to go back to their own communities, and little churches in all those communities. So you sow the seed, may maybe another generation sees the results, but that's what's happening in Ireland at the moment. And one of the interesting things for me as well is that you do all these meetings, you go to these meetings, and some of them are pretty ropey meetings and very ropey talks, and you come away and wonder, was it worthwhile? But invariably, in my experience, sometimes it can be 25 years later, somebody will say, oh, that meeting, oh, I was converted at that meeting. I was at a meeting for preachers in Greystones a couple of years ago, and we were in our groups introducing each other. And this young man in front of me who was a full-time staff worker with Ivy's shared his testimony, he said I was converted on the beach in Malay at CSSM. It all began there. Who knew that? None of us knew it. But God was working. 25 years later, he's a worker with, or 20-something years later, he was a worker with IFES. Again, I met another young man converted here in Ballyhome, CSSM, now leading the youth work in his church. And so, you've got to wait for it. You, You sow the seed, and God is sovereign both in the results and in the timing. I think of a track that was dropped through a door, and the guy who received the track insulted the young Christian who handed it out and told him to clear off, crumbled up the track, threw it in the waste bin. But when the young man had gone away, he found himself drawn back, and he took it out of the waste bin, and he opened it up, and he began to read it. And it never left him. It was 15 years later before we met him. He's now the youth worker in the church, or one of the youth workers in the church down there in Kilkenny. But he said it never left him that message, and he knew it was right, but he didn't want it. And he fought with it all those years. But all those years on, he and his wife converted, involved in the youth work just uh, last October a man walked into our church sat down two or three weeks later had come to Christ really in a very sudden and dramatic kind of way but what I hadn't known I had met some people up here in Belfast and they told me about a, a brother who was a black sheep and they'd prayed for him for 45 years he left 45 years ago got married to a girl in the south disappeared off the radar never went back to church And this was the man who had walked through our door. Forty-five years on, and now we can't stop him. He's in the prayer meeting and the Bible studies and the choir and so on, plays the piano and plays, leads in worship. But it took 45 years of prayer before that prayer was answered. Let me use one other illustration that I think Jacob will recognize. I think of many people who have turned up at our church in Drogheda. And when you ask where were they converted, they'll say, well, there was an evangelist came here some 20-something years ago. Now, I only knew him a little bit, but I understood he wasn't a particularly easy character, and he had very, saw, he had very definite views on just about everything, and it was very hard for him to plant a church because nobody else agreed with him on everything. And away he went, and I don't know if he ever knew the effect of his ministry, but all over the community of Drogheda, people had come to faith through his ministry, and they now filter in, into our church all these years later. And I think of the words of Jesus who said, others did the hard work, and we are entering in to their labors. So, it's a wonderful thing to be involved in the gospel. We sow the seed. We're not at all responsible for the results, and I'm very conscious that some of you work in Islamic countries where the work is so very slow, and you may never see the results of what you're doing. It may take other generations, but our task is to sow the seed and sow it faithfully, and we leave the result in the hands of God. Let me finish with another story from the Reformation. I love the story of Philip Melanchthon, who was a a buddy of Luther's. And at one point, the Reformation was heading, it seemed, in a wrong direction, and the enemy seemed to be winning. And Melanchthon couldn't find Luther. He was running everywhere, hither and thither. Where is Martin? We need Martin to sort out the problem and they eventually tracked him down to a little pub in Wittenberg, and there he was drinking a pint of beer. And Philip said, what are you doing? The Reformation's at stake, and you're sitting here drinking beer. And Luther's response was something like this. He said, as I sit here drinking my pint of Wittenberg beer, God is in heaven, and the gospel runs its course. Now, that's not meant to encourage you to beer drinking or to laziness in the work of the kingdom but simply to remind ourselves that God is sovereign. It's his work. We sow the seed, and then we can go to bed and go to sleep and relax, if you like, and leave the results with him. So, in this post-modern, post-Christian, post-pluralist, whatever, secular world, whatever we want to call it, our task is very clear. Sow the good seed of the word and do it faithfully and do it well with all the imagination, with all the accuracy, with all the skill we can muster. And don't be diverted from that task, because that is the task. And when it finds good seed, or the good seed finds a good soil, you can't stop it. And it will prove to be very powerful. And even as we go to bed and go to sleep, and even after we're dead, actually, as well, God will go on working, and the results will come. And perhaps the best way to put it is this. It is the only method, the only method that God has promised to bless. So let's let's not be diverted from it. Let's take a moment to pray. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.